Hello, everyone, and welcome back to PolicyWise Podcast. I'm your host, Ellie Arsbecker, and today we have a super, super special episode featuring two of the most inspiring people I've ever had the joy of working with. But before I introduce them, and because I need to keep the suspense going, I'm just going to give some brief background on what we're going to be discussing today first. So in the state of California currently, there are no K-12 or public university mandates for students to receive climate change or environmental education as part of their general education requirements. So for a bunch of students, including myself, environmental education doesn't even become accessible until you go to college, um, and mainly if you're just pursuing that major in college. So California Assembly Bill 1939 aims to address this deficiency within our education system. And AB 1939, which was first introduced in February 2022, would add a science requirement to K-12 education within the state that tries to address the causes and effects of climate change and also methods to mitigate and adapt to climate change. So the bill passed the assembly on May 5th in 2022 and then was sent to the Senate. And the Senate then sent it to the Committee on Education, where it's been sitting since June 15th, 2022, so a little over a year ago. So today, to talk a little bit about the bill and also just climate change education in general, I'm joined by two influential figures within the environmental education movement. And today we get into the importance of climate literacy, we get into what accessible and equitable environmental education should look like, and we also touch on the power of peer-to-peer and youth-led education. So with me today is Sage Lanier, the creator of a UC Berkeley course called Solutions for a Sustainable and Just Future. And she's also the recent founder of an associated nonprofit called Sustainable and Just Future. And I'm also joined by Anu Thirunarayanan, a recent Berkeley graduate who served as an instructor of the course during their time at Cal as well. And also just to give full disclaimer, because I'm probably the most biased host ever on this topic, um, I'm actually currently working as the head instructor for Solutions for a Sustainable and Just Future at Cal, and I collaborate super closely with Sage and Anu every day. So I'm thinking that the host versus guest line might be a little blurry today, but I'm obviously super, super excited to speak with the both of you about the work that we've all been doing together these past few years. Hi, I'm Sage. So excited to be on. So I started the program at UC Berkeley and we started out with 25 students and thus far we've had 1,800 people go through the program, which is crazy. And so this earlier this spring, I started the nonprofit because there's been a huge demand to bring it to other universities, high schools, and just, you know, get people climate educated. Anu, how about you? If you want to give a brief intro for yourself. Yeah, for sure. I... Came into UC Berkeley already really interested in sustainability and conservation efforts. In high school, I worked on some conservation research projects, marsh conservation, invasive species, that sort of thing. So I came into Berkeley really interested in the math side of things. I was going to be an applied math researcher working on ecological efforts. Took a couple classes at Cal, got really interested in the human aware side of conservation (laughs) and environmental justice. And that's really where my passions lie now. And that's what I've been working on since, particularly in the education space, such as through the decal. And right now I'm really looking into how to combine my interests in data and responsible technology and environmentalism and environmental justice. So we'll see where this journey of life takes us there. So many great places, I'm sure. Well, just to give some context for our listeners who aren't familiar, 
at UC Berkeley where all of us either went or I'm still currently going, there's something called the DECAL program called Democratic Education at Cal program, which is a student-led, basically a course list of student-created and student-led classes. So undergraduates teaching other undergraduates curriculum that they've come up with. Sage initially started this course back when she was still at UC Berkeley. And like she mentioned, now it's been taught to close to 2,000 other students. And now with the nonprofit, we're looking to expand outwards. But just, I have a question for you, Sage. Why do you think it's so important that young people start taking the initiative to create environmental education and make it accessible to their peers? What is it that really inspired you to take this leap in creating a curriculum when there are classes, I mean, at Berkeley, there are classes that exist, but I guess what specifically were you aiming to achieve when you created this curriculum and what were you trying to communicate that maybe wasn't being communicated well in the classes that were made available to you? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the place I was coming from when I decided to start this entire program was, it was just kind of like a fuck it, I'll do it kind of moment. The education that is available to us by and large, whether it's at Berkeley or just honestly around the world, their surrounding the environment is so, so bad. I mean, it's very detached from the actual situation and it's really inaccessible. You shouldn't be able to graduate from high school or let alone college and not know anything about the ecological systems that are keeping you alive and the role that your future career or occupation or lifestyle is going to play in these human and ecological systems. I was trying to write the education that I wasn't getting. Totally. And I think that's actually something I want to touch on a bit more right now, too, because I think when we talk about environmental education, there's actually a bill sitting in the California Senate right now about introducing mandatory K-12 through climate change education. But I think a lot of people's first assumption and first inclination when talking about environmental education is climate change science. And obviously, it's an important part of climate literacy. But this curriculum that you've created, Sage, and honor that you and I have been kind of working with and teaching the past few years It gets into a lot, a lot more than that. And it really tries to offer this entire environmental justice perspective that I don't think is very often associated with traditional climate science education. Anu, why do you think that shifting the narratives that we tell within environmental education is so important? Anu, I guess from your perspective, A, how has this course challenged some of the ways in which we talk about climate change, where we rely a lot on facts and figures And building off of that, I think, what do you think is the value of using storytelling within education in ways that maybe haven't been used as strongly before in traditional forms of education? I think something this class does is, like I said, try to paint a vision for a sustainable future. What does that mean to you? And what does that look like in practice in the classroom? Yeah, definitely. When you go back to even like when when we're kids, you you grow up with folktales and fables and like little stories that are, you know, that usually end with like moral of the story, da 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 da, right? And these are the ways that we raise children because it's stories that allow kids to really get interactive with the world around them and allow their imagination to explore and also to get something out of it, you know, a moral out of it to understand how to live within the society and the world that they're in. And I think as we grow up, we start to take or especially in the Western world, in the U.S. specifically, because that's where we're based, this 
argument that, you know, we need to be focused more on facts and figures and start taking the emotionality out of how we interact with the people in the world around us, which doesn't make sense because that's the exact opposite of how we're raised. You know, innately, we're all, we all want our imagination to be expansive. We all want to like dream and idealize the people in the world around us and to grow and learn in those ways. And when that's the case, stories are what get at the heart of what we want to see in the world around us. Just focusing on numbers can be really great for a certain demographic, but to really mobilize change, we need to make sure that we can visualize what we want to see. And if you can't visualize that and you're only given numbers and facts without the proper context or without the proper allowance to dream and visualize and understand what this world can be, it doesn't make a difference in what we do or what we want to do because you don't know what you can do or what you want to do. And I think that's where storytelling plays a huge, huge part in climate education. Anyone can rattle off statistics. Anyone can rattle off data and numbers. And I love data and numbers. Don't get me wrong. But I think any data, any number needs to be shown in a way that can actually hit at the hearts of the people that we're talking to. And so for, you know, when we're talking about little, little kids, like five-year-old, four-year-old, toddler to early kindergarten, you know, that might look like using stories that more that are more similar to the folk tales and fables and like fairy tales they're used to. You know, like I remember when I was little, like the Pixie Hollow fairies, like Tinkerbell and all the fairies, they're what got me really interested in environmentalism because there was like a water fairy and a light fairy. And I remember going outside and being like, oh, I wonder if I'm going to run into a light fairy if I like you know, a rim right underneath the sunset. And I think that's what got me wanting to feel in tune with the world around me. And then as I got older, you know, I start hearing about stories of child labor in factories and things like that. Like I was reading these books about all the horrors in Pakistan and India. And that's what really got me interested in making sure that I'm minimizing my consumerism at a very young age. Like I was probably 10 or 11. My parents would be like, hey, do you want another dress? Do you want another shoe for this event? I'd be like, no, I'm good. I already have all these dresses. There's this one story that I had, or one book that I had with uh, a kid named Iqbal. And I was like, I don't want to make Iqbal make more shoes for me. Like, I think I'm good where I'm at. And that was sort of the attitude that I had towards my own personal consumerism. And then as you grow up and now in high school and, you know, I see and, you know, people are talking. And it's, again, those facts and figures. And I was already interested, so I wanted to get more into environmentalism and continue that work but to be quite honest like even though I was doing research in my like high school early college years it wasn't really I wasn't the most passionate at that time because I felt like I was just dealing with numbers all day even though I loved doing that and it was really getting back into the education space where I was able to use my voice and share these stories and present what I care about in a way that I cared about that really got me energized again and I think that's sort of the trajectory that I see when it comes to storytelling. Why do you think that shifting the narratives that we tell within environmental education is so important? Why is it important to maybe offer this broader um, environmental justice perspective rather than just focusing on the actual mechanics of climate change, for example? Yeah, definitely. I think I'll start a bit more local where I'm based in the Bay Area and then shift it to more global. So when we're looking at the Bay Area itself, you know, it's a pretty vast base of land. You know, if you're looking at certain areas of Berkeley, such as the Berkeley Hills, you're going to have greater life expectancy 
longer lifespans, that sort of thing. But then if you look at areas of Oakland or areas of San Mateo before it was, you know, has been gentrified in the past 10, 20 years, life expectancies lower, lifespans are lower, your ability to get fresh, nutritious food is much more difficult. Food deserts exist in vast swaths of Oakland, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We can go on and on. And these are all because of policies that have been put in place that take into account, you know, the history of redlining and segregation and, you know, all of these things that we talk about maybe sometimes in history class, but don't really delve into all that much and definitely don't delve into, you know, in our AP environmental science courses or whatever. And then when you start zooming out and start looking at it from a global perspective, when it comes to climate change and rising sea levels and hotter temperatures in the summer and much colder temperatures in the winter, most of these impacts are faced, the brunt of it is faced by island nations, by countries in Asia, countries in Africa, South American countries, et cetera, et cetera, you know, to put it shortly, like the global South or, you know, the majority of the world, really, but these are all communities of color that when we look at the United States and, you know, the Western world as a powerful block of nations and a powerful focus, these communities, my community is not being centered. You know, I come from a farming family and there are so many issues that go into, you know, agriculture in India but the attention simply isn't there. And I think that's where environmental justice comes into play is really making sure that those voices are being heard, that these narratives are being centered and those that are going to be facing the brunt of the impacts of climate change are the ones that are making the decisions to properly and positively impact their own livelihoods and the livelihoods of the communities around them. Because right now, the people who are controlling that narrative are, you know, big oil companies and lobbyists and those who have money and want to keep making more money. And often those people and communities are centered in white nations in the United States and in Europe. And we want to be able to shift that so we can actually make a positive impact in the world that we live on. Fully agree. I mean, obviously, we've been hitting on some of the components within the curriculum that are challenging the way that things have been done before. And I think the curriculum itself is creative and it's necessary in this moment because of that, because it's pushing back on the way we've always done things. But I think what's cool about the Berkeley program too is that the way that it's taught and by who it's taught is also radically different than what we've seen before because you have young people teaching their peers. And Anu, I know both you and I, I'm now going into my third year helping teach this class and you just finished up your second year teaching this class as well. And we're getting up in front of 200 students every week who are either just a couple years younger than us or some of them are older than us. And I feel like that's a wild experience to be a young person and you're up in front of this room of other people, literally students just like you, and you're lecturing them. And sometimes I'm like, why am I up here? (laughs) Like, what do I have to say to them that I'm qualified to communicate when they're literally the same age as me? But I think there is power in the fact that it's young people teaching other young people and in building this community where it's like, I care about us. So I'm going to try to communicate some of the information that we need as we move forward together. I guess from your perspective, what value do you think there is in having young people teach other young people? And I guess what has kind of been the response from the students who we've had in our course 
when it comes to giving feedback as another young person teaching? Yeah, definitely. I think it comes down to perspective, right? Because we know what we're going through. We know that the, what narratives have been fed to us. We know what climate education we have received and what we haven't received. And we know where the holes are. You know, people that are older than us, even just by maybe five, 10 years, their experiences have been so radically different when it comes to the education that they've received and the education that they think we should receive because they don't know what it was like to maybe be in school during the pandemic. They don't know what it was like to, you know, see all these different news stories about rising sea levels because when we were 10 they were 20 or you know something like that 20 30 40 50 whatever right and so the way that it maybe hits them and the way that they've processed it is going to be different than the way we've processed it because we were mentally and emotionally just at a different level than those that are older than us we know the world that we're in and we know the world that we're going to be in from our perspective and that way we can be a support group basically in educating and advocating for and you know connecting with those that are around our age maybe a couple years older younger whatever and I think that's where peer-to-peer education is so incredibly beautiful and joyful and radical because we can you know just be stronger connected together and help each other understand where the missing pieces are and use our own skills to support the growth of other people's skills and vice versa. I think the feedback from our students has been overwhelmingly positive because they see us lecturing and they see where we're coming from because that's where they're coming from too. When we feel everything is going to zero, like, you know, the doomsday mentality, et cetera, et cetera, everyone from our generation has felt that and has we're working on pushing past that. And of course, that's not ever going to fully finish, but that's that journey that we're all on together and we know where to come from and we know what those perspectives are and what those pitfalls are and what's helped us get out of those pits. And I think that's where the beauty in peer-to-peer education lies. You included versus excluded in this curriculum. And obviously it's grown over the years too. And Anu and I have added some new content as well as as. I guess some of the conversations around climate issues have changed over the years, but I guess really how do you distill such a complex issue into just a handful of lectures or into just one semester of education? Ooh, not a lot of people ask me that. I think what I was trying to build, I think this is my best attempt at and everything you need to know about the planet as someone who lives on it. If I had all the power in the world And I got the whole, I could sit the entire world down for 12 hours and I got their attention undivided. What do I think they need to know? And that was kind of what I went from. It's kind of intuitive in retrospect, but it's still not a framework that's popular and that's what we're trying to change. The biggest, biggest, biggest component of the program is that the ecological crisis is, cannot be solved with solar panels and wind turbines. We have to have a we have to design a radically different system. So this is an attempt to explain and describe and envision and you know step by step action plan that radically different system. A huge portion of that is the the circular economy, which is inherently a lower resource, lower carbon society, and just envisioning certain things like you know when you talk about urban planning, it's we're planning for ten billion people by twenty fifty. Where do we put them? How do we feed them? What's the best way to organize ourselves? As you know, we're talking about 
sea level rise and a billion people potentially being displaced because of coastal erosion and sea level rise. Okay, that's terrifying. What are we going to do with those people? Where? How do we be ready? How do we be resilient? It's simultaneously like, okay, let's let's dig our feet in and prepare for the worst, but also envisioning the best and envisioning a sustainable and just future. And I really like that it's very solutions-oriented, very action-focused. People come out of it super energized and, oh, wow, okay, like, you know what? Like, I, I do feel like better things are possible. So I think the framework in retrospect is very intuitive, but in the process of creating it, it felt like a disaster. So Sage, like you mentioned, I think one thing that I love about this curriculum too is that it's not just a broader curriculum in the sense of teaching about environmental issues outside of climate change, but it's also offering this completely new perspective on the world. And it's about challenging a lot of these systems that we've had in place for a long time that are very ingrained in the way that we operate now. And I think obviously this work started at Berkeley, both of us know there are plenty of issues within the environmental curriculum at Cal, but I think there is this overall desire for an acceptance of environmental studies and a bit more of a revolutionary way of approaching some of these issues in this space. But now with the nonprofit, you're expanding outside of Berkeley, outside of California, um, and you're going to be expanding into a lot of places that maybe have different ideas around climate education or around some of these core concepts that, that we teach in this curriculum. And I mean, I think I liked your point about just kind of the the emotional side of this as well. I mean, everyone that we teach with and have taught with has obviously come into the environmental space in semi-similar ways in the sense of like this issue felt really overwhelming. How do I cope with this? And now I think a lot of the people that we're teaching, they're having that experience and they're taking this class because they're like, I don't actually fully understand what's going on and I'm nervous about it and I'm scared about it and I want to know what tools are at my disposal to take care of myself and take care of my community and understand what's happening around me. And I think there is a beauty in the fact that us as young people who've also recently gone through that and are still going through that, the way we communicate is just going to kind of have that that feeling to it. And I think that's not something that you often get from your other professors. And even just like in general, at a big school like Berkeley, like being able to feel that kind of emotional connection when you're in a room with 200 people is kind of a crazy experience. And it at times feels like even though there might not be a bunch of student interaction during the actual lecture itself, there's just a feeling of we are all in this together and we are all learning about these things together and caring about these things together. That just feels really inspiring to me. When you're talking about that, it reminds me this past year specifically when I think it's at the end of the environmental justice lecture when we're talking about people power and there's a video on uni- like anti-unionization from Whole Foods, like Amazon Whole Foods. There's a training video. And every time we show it at the exact same points, people laugh and people go, what? And, you know, there's those joint reactions. And those were the exact same reactions that I had when I first watched it. And I have every single time I watch it. And it's so funny to me when I like chuckle under my breath while we're watching the video as a class. And then I hear like a little group of people chuckling as well. And I think that moment that we share, that's always been the highlight of my, like within all the lectures that we teach is that a video because I think it just provokes so much of this 
of so much of the same reaction and that's the reaction that we're hoping to provoke as well and it just makes me laugh and smile every single time that I think about it and in addition to what I was saying earlier I think when it comes to peer-to-peer education it's just in our kind of outdated education system we see you know whoever's at the front of the classroom as an authority I think that can also be really scary because you want to please whoever the authority figure is you want to make sure that you're getting good grades and you know you get a letter of rec at the end but when it comes to decal program or any sort of you know peer-to-peer education program it's just about learning and connecting and you know getting something out of it for yourself and it's not about the, especially because decal classes or pass, no pass, it's really not about the grade, you know, it really is just about getting as much information as you can, which I think leads to a much more fulfilling and knowledgeable experience versus the traditional class where you're being taught by, you know, a 65 year old white guy (laughs) who is going to be grading your essays in a pretty tough way. And so you need to know exactly what you need to say to get the best grade you can, so you can go to grad school or whatever. And I think nurturing that environment that the decal program has set up for us pretty well allows it to be a much more fulfilling and just a joyful experience. I mean, I fully agree. And I think actually when you said that, it got me thinking about the idea of accessibility. And I think there is an issue within climate education as it currently stands, both because it's not mandated, but also because it isn't seen as something In education, it's not seen as something that's foundational to everything else that you're learning. And I think that's hard because then you have these very siloed disciplines when in reality, everything that we're learning, everything that we're working on, it has to relate back to the climate because that's that's our current experience on this planet. And we depend on our Earth systems to do everything that we're doing. But I think what you see in education is these very siloed disciplines and So when I came to Cal, it was like, obviously, I knew I wanted to do environmental studies. So then I was taking those courses. But for people who maybe have a passion that lies in another discipline, they aren't going to be seeking out environmental education necessarily, because that's a completely siloed thing that they don't have background in. And then when you go and take these classes, it's like, you don't have the context, like you don't maybe you feel stressed about your grade or whatever. There's just like a lot of barriers to even just within one college to accessing the climate education that is there. And then for a lot of people, the education just isn't there at all. So I'm kind of curious about your perspective on that. And I think some of the success that we've had in our class is that around two thirds of our students are actually coming from non-environmental disciplines. Whereas I think you go and you look at who's in most of these other environmental courses at Berkeley, it's people who are studying environmental science. And I think I like that about the class because it means that we're doing a good job of making this really necessary information available to people who maybe wouldn't be getting it otherwise. And I just wanted to, yeah, kind of hear your thoughts on that and hear your thoughts on the importance of people from all types of backgrounds and all types of disciplines having access to this type of education. Yeah, definitely. I think I was fortunate in that I was at least majorly introduced to environmentalism, you know, in high school when my brain was a little bit more developed in an interdisciplinary way, because I came at it from that applied math perspective or that data science perspective. Again, like I was fortunate to be able to pretty quickly understand that environmentalism is interlinked with anything and everything and any and all other fields. 
work the same way because when it comes to storytelling that's english that's communications that's journalism that's media all of that has to do with environmentalism when it comes to research you know data science etc etc history social stuff anything you can think of there is an environmentalism component to it and environmentalism has that component to it as well i already came at it with that perspective and it took me a while to understand that at cal where you know any and every field is a professor teaching it that that wasn't the educational experience that we would be receiving and it really took me like almost three four semesters to really gain that understanding and to figure out like okay what can we do about this and I think when I was talking to my friends they were saying the same thing it's like oh I know I know we're going to be taking these breath courses but I really thought you know we'd be delving a little bit more deeply into some other fields I love computer science. I love media studies, but I really want to learn more about something completely different. Like I want to learn more about nutritional sciences. I want to learn more about fitness and I want to learn more about politics, but I really don't know where to go from here because I also want to get my degree. I don't want to take my GPA, et cetera, et cetera. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier, just having that base to learn without feeling the pressure to put a, a number on it, a GPA on it. And I think Again, it really does go back to the success of like a student-led program such as the decal program because it, whoever came up with the concept really made sure to nurture that innate love for learning that all of us have in a way that doesn't tamper with our own interests and things like that. I mean, it doesn't put a damper on wanting to do well and wanting to learn without having that GPA associated with it. And I think that's what allows so many students from all these different disciplines to come into the class in the first place is because we advertise it as a place for anyone and everyone to come and learn more about environmentalism. And I think that's what the decal program as a whole also advertises that anyone can take any class and this is a place for you to learn and grow and enjoy yourself and not take things too seriously. And even our curriculum makes sure to you know, we touch on like material sciences and, you know, the more technical aspects of environmentalism. We do have a section on climate science specifically and the numbers and the data behind it. But then we also go into, from a community perspective, what does it look like to rebuild? And I think that touches more on like the sociology and anthropology aspects of environmentalism. And I think being able to develop a curriculum that is very aware of how interdisciplinary environmentalism has to be allows for people from all different fields to come together and find something that resonates with them and figure out where maybe their role or their space within environmentalism lies because that way they can do the work that they want to do and feel passionate about it while still making some sort of step towards an environmental positive environmental impact in their own community or on a broader global scale without allowing for a curriculum that makes sure to take in all different aspects you won't be able to reach have the far reach that you want to have and I think that's what the environmental studies program or environmental science programs at major universities lack is that they only focus on soil and water etc etc without really taking into account all the different perspectives and angles that environmentalism needs to really become a bigger movement and a social issue that anyone and everyone can care about. I fully agree. And I mean, I think obviously we can talk about this from a higher education perspective because that's what we're operating in. 
But the key idea here is that this information is necessary for everybody. And at the end of the day, this isn't knowledge for the sake of knowledge. It's information that's really key to our continued success within our communities and on a planet that's changing. And I think that that is just this like really important idea that I just love to think about when it comes to just the fact that we're trying to make environmental education more accessible is that it looks different everywhere that you go and in every context that you're in. And there's something about being able to have something that's adaptable and really community oriented that makes that possible. Because at the end of the day, this is an issue about humans and the way that we live our lives and the way that we either find community with each other or don't, or the way that we find solidarity with the planet or don't. And that's important in every single space and in every discipline and in every, yeah, just every place that you visit. So just with that being said, I think that this work is something obviously that I am passionate about and think is exciting as we're looking to expand beyond Berkeley, but also expand beyond just higher education in general to make climate literacy something that is widespread. So I'm just very excited for the work that we're doing. And I'm excited to continue working with you, Anu, and with you, Sage, on this on this missions. Well, I just want to say that I think this curriculum and this course is nothing short of revolutionary. And I think it's the most necessary form of education that we could be giving and receiving in this time. So I'm just so grateful to be doing this work with you guys and to watch the work that you both are doing within this climate education space. So thank you so much for your time today and for sitting down for this conversation. I can't wait to see where our work goes. Thanks for listening to PolicyWise. I'm Ellie Arsbecker, the host of today's episode, and this episode was produced by Jarrett Ramones and Cody Stobeg and was edited by Rachel Livenall. PolicyWise podcast is a production of Youth Leadership Institute. If you want to find more great youth content, check out wileye.org and be sure to subscribe to PolicyWise on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And big announcement time, this will be the final season of PolicyWise. It has been such a great ride. Thank you to all of our amazing guests. And of course, thank you to all of our amazing listeners. To discuss this episode, engage with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PolicyWisePod and hashtag your discussions with hashtag PolicyWise. See you next time for more youth voice and policy discussion on PolicyWise.